The last time we visited 1 Corinthians, we left the Apostle Paul rejoicing in chapter 9 and verse 18, rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing particularly in the fact that he could preach the gospel without charge, without cost. Now, to some extent, this was a situation that came about fortuitously. Paul and his companions had gone to Corinth and had labored there for over two years, probably. And the church at Corinth had neglected to look after their financial and material needs. And in passages we've already covered, Paul points out that the laborer is worthy of his hire and that it is the responsibility of a church to look after the material needs of those who preach the gospel to them. But of course the church at Corinth had neglected this responsibility. The Apostle Paul found himself owing nothing to the church at Corinth and therefore he knew that he didn't have to take any notice of their likes and dislikes. He was free of any obligation to them, apart, of course, from the obligation to preach the gospel to them. And then, of course, he added to that. He said that even if they had offered material support and sustenance, he would not have accepted it, even though he did accept such gifts from the Macedonian churches far to the north. And of course, we understand that that is because he simply did not trust the church at Corinth to play fair with him. And so he turned necessity into a reward, he calls it, the reward of preaching the gospel without making any charge. But I pointed out that there were three particular elements to his joy in the gospel, uh, to his rejoicing in the gospel he preached, in rejoicing in gospel liberty, as I'm going to call it today. First of all, because he did not receive any support from the Corinthian church, he distanced himself from the false apostles who had infiltrated that church since his departure about a year before he wrote this letter. He was able to distance himself because those false apostles were all too keen to take money and gifts from the church. In fact, they were hungry to do so. It was one of their motives in obtaining positions and authority within that church that they would be paid for their efforts. And Paul can distance himself 
from those people by saying, no, I took nothing from you. He could claim that he planted that church, that that church existed because of his preaching. If I'm not an apostle to other people, I most certainly am an apostle to you. And so he had that, that unquestionable claim upon their love and respect. But thirdly, and this is the thing I want to amplify today, I pointed out that Paul saw in his fortuitous preaching to the church of Corinth for no reward, he saw in that a picture of the true nature of the gospel, that it is a gospel of grace, a gospel in which God gives blessing, gives salvation, gives eternal life to those who don't deserve it. He gives freely. Grace can be defined as God's unmerited, undeserved giving to sinful people. And not only sinful people, but people who Paul can describe in Romans 5 as enemies. It was while we were yet enemies, he says, that Christ died for us. And so in his own somewhat fortuitous situation of preaching a gospel free of charge, he was mirroring, being a mirror to the genuine and authentic nature of the gospel, that it is a gospel of free grace given to those who deserve nothing except the condemnation of God. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves frequently of that fact that salvation is by grace. Uh, you're very familiar because I often mention it with the passage in um, Ephesians chapter 2 where in the first 10 verses the apostle begins by telling the Ephesians, he's writing to a church now, he begins by telling them that they were dead in trespasses and sins. Before the gospel came to them they were children under the wrath of God. Just like everybody else, he says, for all men and women, children, are sinners in the sight of God and have been since their birth and remain so until their death. But then he goes on in chapter 2, and I'll read a bit of it. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then that definitive statement in verse 8, 
for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no man may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today there is enormous confusion. Those who teach and preach a gospel of free grace are often, often criticised, sometimes even ridiculed, because the natural human mind cannot understand the idea, the concept of grace. They say it, it must be necessary for us to do something for God in order to obtain favour from him. We have sins that make us deserve condemnation, but then we do good things that make us earn God's favour. And we hope that the good things we do balance out the bad things. But the fact of the matter is that everything we do without the indwelling aid of the Holy Spirit is sin and no matter how good we might be compared with other people no matter how kind we might be with our neighbours no matter how free we are with our money no matter how generous we are with our time none of it is sufficiently good to earn our salvation with God because everything we do is, is stained with the mark of self-centeredness. We are doing these things because they please us, not because they please God. Until, until such time <clears throat> as God makes us alive, raises us from our a death in sin to life in Christ and that is something only God can do and it's something that no man can undo so we have to stand up for the gospel that is free of charge not only in the fortuitous circumstances of the apostle at Corinth but in its absolute essential being the gospel is free of charge and only those who learn that who lay aside their pride and come to God seeking something for free seeking God's mercy and blessing only those are going to receive it top lady wrote in his hymn nothing in my hands I bring Simply to your cross I cling, naked come to thee for rest, helpless fly to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. And so we remind ourselves, we remind ourselves first of all of gospel liberty, gospel liberty that's my first heading and it refers to the fact that the gospel is free of charge. 
by its very nature. The purpose of God that no man, no person should glory in his presence. No man should boast of having earned in even the smallest way a part in his salvation. It is of God. We are the creations of God in Christ Jesus. And so we move on to uh, the second part. And from verses 19 to 23, we have uh, a really interesting passage. He begins by saying this, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now Paul is quite fond of using paradoxes to help him get his message across. Probably the best known of those paradoxes, it comes in in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, where he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. A paradox, of course, consists of two statements which are apparently contradictory, but each of which is true. So what does he mean by this paradox? I am free from all. I owe nothing to the Corinthians. I have nevertheless made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And so he continues, of course. Now, what is Paul actually meaning when he says he made himself a servant to all? But as we read on, we discover exactly what he means. What he means is that in preaching the gospel, he has a certain strategy. And that's our second heading, gospel strategy. Paul had a strategy which was to preach the gospel to the unsaved without being unduly confrontational. He is always seeking common ground with those to whom he speaks and with those to whom he preaches the gospel. Common ground, because when you have common ground with somebody, you are able to talk to them. You're able to conduct a conversation with them. If you don't have any common ground, there's no possibility of meeting minds. But if you find something in common with those to whom you speak, and this is generally true, not just in preaching the gospel, if you find something in common, you can have a conversation with that other person. Now Paul applies this to his preaching of the gospel. And he says uh, to those who are Jews, I became like a Jew. Well, he was a Jew, but he 
he was under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And so he was not following the law of Moses, not obeying its instructions, not using its forms of worship. Uh, but he says, if I'm evangelizing Jews, I make it clear that I am a Jew and that those practices of the old covenant that are not contrary to the new covenant, I'll go along with them. You may remember that he shaved his head and took a vow before he went back to Jerusalem. That was being a Jew in order to reach out to Jews. They're doing things that the Jews expected of other people who claimed to be Jews. And so you have common ground on which to base a conversation. And that conversation, of course, can lead to preaching, not necessarily preaching from a pulpit, but preaching face-to-face, one-to-one, with another person. And so he goes on. He says to the Gentiles, who were not under the law, I became as one outside of the law. And then he adds, in case we misunderstand him, is not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, but not under the law of Moses. I've added that last statement to make it clear. But I might win those outside the law. And I think what Paul is arguing here can best be illustrated by the way in which he approached preaching the gospel in Athens. You may remember that he he visited Athens before he came here to Corinth. And when he went to Athens, he started walking around the city and he was deeply troubled, even perhaps horrified, to see that the city was full of idols. I say horrified because Athens was the cultural and intellectual and artistic centre of the known world at that time. Here were men and women who understood philosophy. They understood what there was to be understood at that time of science. They were people who built beautiful buildings, who had great artistic skills, great skills of speech and writing. It should have been the most enlightened company of people that you could come across in the ancient world, but it wasn't. They were simply worshipping idols. Now, Paul went into the marketplace and there he joined in the group discussions because we are told that the people of Athens, or the men of Athens in particular, did nothing all day except talk about and discuss anything that was new. So Paul went there. He joined in with their discussions. Uh, But as a result of that, he was invited by the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers to address them on Mars Hill. You know the story well enough. Now, how did he do it? He could have come in, as it were, with flailing fists. He could have come in with a harsh denunciation of their idolatry. He could have started out by ridiculing the fact that these highly intelligent people were worshipping objects made of stone and wood, idols. But he didn't do that, did he? He looked for some common ground. And he found it in an inscription in the city to the unknown God. 
among all the other familiar idols, the gods of Greece and Rome, he found this one inscription to the unknown God. And so instead of criticizing them, confronting them with the folly of their idolatry, he found common ground because he said, the one who you worship without knowing, I am going to declare to you. So he picked up this one piece of common ground that he was able to find and came alongside them as it were, put his arm around their shoulder and said, you need to know who it is you are worshipping and I am going to tell you. And so he starts off and he preaches one of the most amazing sermons. Now statements in this passage do not mean that Paul compromised his gospel in any way. He didn't come down to their level. He didn't come down and say, well, look, uh, yeah, it's all right for you to worship idols, but I I've got an extra God for you to add uh, to your company of artificial or imaginary gods. doesn't do that. He comes around to pointing out the absolute folly of their worshipping idols later in that sermon. But again, before he does so, he introduces his strictures on their idolatry by quoting two of their own poets. Common ground again, you see. Yes, I know your poets. and They've said some very sensible things. And he quotes them. And so he works his way into their confidence. And he finishes up by proclaiming judgment by a man who has been raised from the dead. He preaches the resurrection of Christ, something he had done right at the beginning in the marketplace. And he warns them that the resurrection of Christ points to a day of judgment. And it was only at that point that some of them interrupted him, I think, and, uh, and laughed at the idea of a man being raised from the dead and that possibly put an end to Paul's sermon. But there were a few who believed in Athens. But you see how Paul came alongside people. It has often been said that you have to make friends before you can make converts. Well, that is over-simplistic. It not, it's not a general truth. But it has a germ of truth that it is only as you get alongside people, find common ground to talk to them about the things of God, that you are likely to bring them at least to listen to what you say and through the work of the Holy Spirit, perhaps bring them out of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. Well, then finally, we've looked at the gospel liberty, we've looked at the gospel strategy and finally we're going to look at the gospel urgency and 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it every athlete exercises self-control 
in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. So I, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box, referring to a different sport here. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, we may think that this last section shows Paul starting a totally new subject. Uh, but no, it's not a totally new subject at all, because the, the key verse here, which we need to notice if we're going to understand this passage, is this statement in verse 24, so run that you might obtain the crown. Now, he has introduced, of course, this analogy. And we need to understand what the analogy signifies in order to understand the passage. Do you not know that in a race, now the apostle used in several other letters, he used race, a race to picture a human life, a whole human life, or sometimes the life of a Christian from conversion to to death in uh, to Timothy, as he writes his last letter to Timothy, probably just a matter of days before he was executed by the Romans. He says, time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for me and for all who love the appearance, the return of Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians, you remember, he talks about pressing on, uh, seeking the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, is again using a sporting analogy. And when he talks about a race, he's not talking about some, some school sports day. He is talking about the endurance race with which the Pan-Hellenic Games ended. And the culmination of those games was always this long distance marathon, if you like, endurance foot race. And they didn't give gold, silver and bronze medals. They only gave one winner. And so he is talking about their lives as being a race, a race which can only be won by strict training, by intensive, enduring preparation, by being fit and well, by not indulging the body in harmful habits, but keeping that body fit, and Paul gives an illustration here. I do not run aimlessly. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now, we mustn't think here that Paul is talking about or preaching salvation by works. That couldn't be possible, could it? Because it, where we started uh, this afternoon in verse uh, 18, we saw that the gospel is a gospel of grace. 
not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are God's workmanship. So what is Paul talking about when he warns the Corinthians to watch out how they live? Because they won't get the prize of eternal life, he says, unless they do live a life that is consistent with their profession of Christianity. You see, I think there's no doubt that Paul knew that within the church at Corinth uh, there were some, possibly many, who were merely professing Christians, who had not been born again by the Spirit of God. They had just joined the church and gone along and been baptised uh, and then having sorted out their affairs with God they lived as they liked and of course we had examples of that and there will be more examples before the Corinthian epistles are finished. These people were professing faith in Christ but they were denying that faith by their lifestyle and it is not sufficient for us simply to say well God has given me salvation I've been born again, though they probably haven't, and therefore I can now live as I like, because all my sins are forgiven, past, present and future. I am okay with God. So it doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I sin, doesn't matter how lazy I am, doesn't matter what I do with my time, doesn't matter what I do with my money, it doesn't matter. I am in control now. God has cleansed my sin and that matter is finished and done with. But no. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Grace, grace, grace. But he doesn't put a full stop there. He says, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works cannot be a cause of salvation, but they are essential as the evidence of salvation. They cannot bring about salvation, but they can confirm the fact that we are saved. And if they do not appear, well, the Lord Jesus himself said, by their fruits you will know them. He looks for fruit. He looks for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you, you know them. He looks for those fruits. And if he doesn't see those fruits, then he knows, of course, but others also know that those people are professing faith, but denying their faith by their lifestyle. And so he warns these professing Christians within the church at Corinth that it's not enough to profess faith. It's not enough to be in the race by calling themselves Christians. You have to run in such a way that you obtain the crown of eternal life. And as we go on next time into chapter 10, 
of course we shall see a further illustration of that which really drives the point home but that will have to wait until next time